0: Tricked you, fucker.
1: Three, <laughs> two.
0: What are the roots that clutch? What branches grow out of this stony rubbish? Son of man, you cannot say or guess, for you know only a heap of broken images. Where the sun beats, and the dead tree gives no shelter. The crickets no relief. And the dry stone no sound of water. Only there is shadow under this red rock. Come in under the shadow of this red rock. And I will show you something different from either your shadow at morning striding behind you or your shadow at evening rising to meet you. I will show you fear in a handful of dust.
1: Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. You got a little treat at the beginning, which is a clip from my video essay, Journey Through Twin Peaks, where I juxtapose Jeremy Irons reading T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland with the footage of the atomic explosion. Now, Obviously, in audio form, you can't see that, so it loses some of the effect. But even, I think, with the music, the threnody for the victims of Hiroshima, it makes for a very absorbing audio track. Today's episode concludes the week of coverage on Season 3, Part 8. And for this, I'm going to share my archive, what I wrote at the time, some of my video essay work on the show, some podcast appearances I made, and I'm also going to throw Em and Steve into the mix. Uh, This is sort of the farewell to them as guests for this past week of coverage, where I'm going to play some audio from their podcast in 2017, the Sparkwood and 21 podcast, where they reacted to the episode for the first time. After this archive section, I'm going to... Uh, Play the first opening minute of part nine. I'll give a warning before that if you want to tune out. If you haven't watched it yet, uh, you just, you know, you you don't want to hear the audio from it and my description of what we see. But that's what I'm going to do after that point. Give you just a little teaser of how we open the following week. But then we're going to take a week off after part nine, just as the show itself did in 2017, and come back on July 9th with part nine. So take a breather after part eight. We need it. From my previous work on part eight, 2017, my initial response right after the episode. Through almost my entire history of watching Twin Peaks, I've watched it alone. I saw the first two seasons on my computer screen with headphones in the summer of 2008. Fire Walk With Me soon became one of my most memorable solo viewings of any movie, a visceral experience I had to write about as soon as I finished because it was so overwhelming. I immediately rewatched much of the series, writing about each episode, again by myself, When I rewatched Twin Peaks six years later, aside from one episode with a friend after buying a used VHS tape at a dying rental store, it was again a private experience. I finally saw a screening of Firewalk with me at a local library with a crowd and my cousin, a newly minted Peaks fan, but by that point I'd seen the movie a half dozen times and had plenty of opportunities to think about it. The new series initially followed suit. I was visiting a friend in New York for the premiere, but he'd never watched Twin Peaks and didn't want to start with the return, so he sat in the other room, focused on his own work, only poking his head back in when I yell loudly at the glass box monster. Tonight, at my parents' house, after a long week spent with family, I was surrounded by other viewers, including an aunt eating Cheerios, the aforementioned cousin, my mother, who quickly left the room, about the time the dusty ghost monsters were ripping up the bloody doppelganger, and a visiting sister who just watched the finale, the season two finale, for the first time a few days ago. My sister hadn't even had time yet to watch the film, let alone any new episodes, so I was prepared to occasionally catch her up to speed when old and new characters appeared. As it turned out, that wouldn't be an issue. We sat spellbound for much of the episode, but also talked, noticing details, drawing comparisons, occasionally just marveling or cringing, laughing at jokes and asides. On the one hand, this would seem a wildly inappropriate way to watch one of the most immersive, meditative, visual, not to underplay one of Lynch's most evocative soundscape, pieces of, well, cinema. The televisual aspect seems almost incidental, dating back for the past hundred years. And indeed, I may wake up early tomorrow before work to pull up a chair much closer to the TV and rewatch the whole hour alone, soaking it in without any company or distractions. Yet to be honest, this feels like the perfect time to make Twin Peaks communal. Not only are we all, recent veteran and brand new Peaks viewers, equally lost in uncharted waters, This is radical new territory for an already radical series. We are also undergoing one of Lynch's deepest dives into world history and mythology. This is, somehow, the history of the human race, and the modern age, and we're all in it together. And then a later passage in the essay. Finally, since begotten keeps emerging as a key reference, speaking of a 1994 experimental film, for me at least, I have no idea if Lynch and Frost ever saw it, and suspect they did not. Let's note that its seemingly random, free-associational chain of events actually carried very specific themes and references. Wikipedia manages to boil this down to its most succinct, so I'll just quote them here and let you mull over everything. The story opens with a robed, profusely bleeding God disemboweling itself, with the act ultimately ending in its death. A woman, Mother Earth, emerges from its remains, bringing the dead body to arousal and inseminates herself with its semen. Becoming pregnant, She wanders off into a vast and barren landscape. The pregnancy manifests in a fully grown convulsing man whom she leaves to his own devices. The son of earth meets a group of faceless nomads who seize him with what is either a very long umbilical cord or a rope. The son of earth vomits organic pieces and the nomads excitedly accept these as gifts. The nomads finally bring the man to a fire and burn him. Mother earth encounters the resurrected man and comforts him. She seizes the man with a similar umbilical cord. The nomads appear and proceed to rape her. Son of Earth is left to mourn over the lifeless body. A group of characters appear and carry Mother Earth to another place, where they dismember her, later returning for Son of Earth. After he, too, is dismembered, the group buries the remains, planting the parts into the crust of the Earth. The burial site becomes lush with flowers. Grainy photographs of God killing himself are shown. In a final scene, Mother Earth and Son of Earth are seen again in a flashback, this time wandering through the forest so that's the description. But what, or who, is the creature that crawls into the young girl's mouth at the end of this hour? Well, it's definitely a callback to Lynch's digital animation The Bug Crawls, which calmly observes a similar figure in a similar landscape. Perhaps the most obvious conclusion, giving its grotesque appearance and ominous way it is introduced, is that the egg of Bob spotted floating through the mushroom cloud hatched 11 years later and entered into its, or his, first victim. I'm not too thrilled with this idea for reasons I can and can't articulate right now. On the most mundane level, we've been told that Bob has already entered Leland around the same time. I kind of prefer to think this is Laura's egg, the one we saw produced by the golden cloud released by the giant, the cloud that my cousin pointed out looks like a uterus, and that this creature is Laura's spirit entering a young Sarah Palmer. Yes, this seems an alarming, uncomfortable wave for a force of good to enter the human world, but that's one of the things I like about it. I'm always pushing against the idea that unsettling or disturbing equals bad in the Lynch world. There's also something fitting about Laura entering the girl as she drifts off following a romantic, longing date, given Laura's own tumultuous struggles with sexual desire, guilt, and curiosity. If nothing else, this is a striking visualization of romance and or sexuality entering a young person's consciousness at a critical moment. It's almost as if the whole town has fallen under a spell that arises from her own adolescent awakening. In 2017, I was a guest on Twin Peaks Unwrapped to discuss season three up to this point. So Joel, uh, have you started thinking about maybe when the series is over doing a video essay on the new series? Yeah, I've been
2: wondering like sort of what shape it'll take. It's so hard to tell at this point because the series could just go anywhere. Like nobody would have... I mean, even I think there have been spoilers out there with something to do with an atomic bomb, which... I'm now thinking, like, how could people have known next? Because clearly that wasn't a practical explosion right. they made to look like a mushroom cloud. So, like, how did people know that was going to happen? I, I don't know. I'd well, I think to, a
1: Gordon Cole's that, picture in the back of his office. how right, yeah. I mean, yeah, like, yeah. Hmm,
2: maybe. But, like, it was a pretty direct, like, I remember on Doug Poe, like, a year or two, a year ago, I guess, there were people was like, sort of whispers of, like, Oh yeah, there's probably gonna be an atomic explosion in the desk like Twin Peaks, which that's is like a really random thing to know. Yeah, that's wow. Know? So I don't know how people knew that, but even with even kind of having a hint of that, nobody could have predicted where last week's episode no, would right. go. So Not at all. with ten left, it's like man, there's only one thing left, and I won't say what it is because um, I know you know yeah, no one or both of you has avoided it. <laughs> but there was one big spoiler that came out that was in like TMZ and stuff that shot really openly for everybody to see. And I just keep wondering, well, I get nervous, first of all, as it gets delayed week after week, like, oh, no, is this going to be like a climactic moment? Yes. But mm. then I wonder if, like, they did it so openly, like with people, 100 people standing there with phones, it's like even if they didn't want it to get out, and they were like, put away your phones and mm. stuff, which I think they said. They're still showing it to strangers. So a part of me even wonders. somebody suggested, what if it's just like a teaser that he shot and it's not actually part of the show. That, it was um, like sort of a viral promotion or something that would have been some uh, just for fun. But so I won't say any more about that, but yeah, I, mean, it, I might it, know of it. A bit. I don't want to, but
1: don't say anything. But. <laughs> yeah. But there are there is an open shot outside. Oh, that, open yeah. shot
2: outside. Okay. Yeah, I, 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 I don't want to get into it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I, I, yeah. I yeah. Do we, regret, won't, we won't
2: detail it. Yeah. I yeah. regret that I saw it because I'm always thinking, is this the yeah. end of the series type thing? Or mm. yeah. When that happens, it'll be kind of awesome because yeah. it'll be like, okay, now from this point on, because I think that and the atomic explosion were the only things that we haven't seen yet that I, I remember hearing about the dog leg and hmm. you know these little, and the kid getting hit by the car I heard that some there oh there's a, I think there's may, actually there might be one other thing too but that that might have even been something that already happened Interesting. It I think there's like two or three things. so so what, like it could go anywhere and we really have no idea Yeah So it's to get exciting. back to your question it, it's so hard to sort of think about where the videos will go because the thing with the videos I made before was They were created with like an endpoint in design because the whole point was like people talk about Twin Peaks in a fragmented way. And I wanted to give an impression of like one journey to a certain destination. The same thing with this, like once I've kind of seen where it's all leading, I can kind of go back, pick it apart and think about it in that light.
1: In 2018, on the anniversary of parts five through eight, I had a conversation with Lindsay Stamhouse on the site 25 years later. I said it's worth noting that the bomb exploded at the Trinity test site was a fission bomb. It created a nuclear reaction by splitting apart the nuclei. I don't know a lot about physics at all, but this seems significant. My understanding is that fusion bombs create fission as well, but a bomb that relies primarily on splitting apart rather than joining together definitely has some symbolic value. This is also in keeping with Twin Peaks' perpetual theme about division being dangerous. In a sense, then, rather than the spirits joining with our world, something is being rendered apart, and the damage arises from this. We see another example of this when the experiment vomits all the eggs and the bob bubble, a separation of elements, the results of which will be extremely toxic. When witnessing this first explosion, atomic scientist J. Robert Oppenheimer quoted the Bhagavad Gita, Now I am become death, destroyer of worlds. What we witness in this sequence is a creation myth, an origin story, but one characterized fundamentally by destruction. Whatever world is being created here is a broken version of whatever worlds existed before. And Lindsay said, that's a tremendous observation. Even if we can't necessarily agree on whether or not Cooper himself split, the implication here is that it wouldn't have been a good thing. So that begs the question, would reunification solve the problem? Or is it a signal that, as with nuclear fission, Reunification would be almost impossible. Because, and here is my rudimentary knowledge of nuclear physics coming into play, my understanding is that once an atom has been split, it can't be put back together again the way it was before the split. So that might also hold some heavy consequences, metaphorically, for the world of Twin Peaks. In 2020, for Journey Through Twin Peaks, Chapter 36, The Return, I had a couple episodes on Part 8 because there was so much that happened here. One focused on the atomic bomb and the sequence with the giant, called Atomic Aftermath, it's appropriate that we glimpse our first movie screen in the show's history, because television has never felt so overtly cinematic. Both the exterior and interior images of the cloud recall one of Lynch's favorite filmmakers, Stanley Kubrick, and the idea of a super-historical, evolutionary origin story, as well as the shift from interstellar to human scale, recalls not just 2001 A Space Odyssey, but Tree of Life by Lynch's contemporary Terence Malick. As the critic Michael Nordine argues, this sequence may even be a subtle, even subconscious rebuke of Malick's more stately approach which Lynch is on record objecting to. Dazzling pictures evoke experimental filmmakers like Stan Breckage or John Whitney. Even before Part 8 fully blasts off, its dancing woodsmen feel reminiscent of E. Ilias Mirage's Begotten. And when those woodsmen return, movie connections will only proliferate. And then one on the New Mexico town with the kids and the woodsmen and that whole sequence called A Darkness in the Desert. The final stretch of the episode that Showtime, memorably titled, is Lynch's most sustained work in Black and White, and in a particular period piece, since The Elephant Man. A kind of American graffiti on acid, as if George Lucas returned to his first hit. With extras from the Star Wars cantina, this sequence is above all a throwback to B-movies of the same post-war period in which it's set horror and sci-fi films about the descent of aliens, zombies, or other mutant monsters upon a helpless desert town, often, like the woodsmen implicitly are, created or unleashed by atomic testing. This setting also recalls westerns, with their isolated and perpetually threatened frontier villages.
0: It was really nice of
1: you to walk me home. Marked by old-fashioned courtship isolated and hard-working individuals, and of course, the Indians, always hovering ominously over the horizon, reminders, even if the genre itself was seldom sympathetic, of the hidden displaced costs of these settlements, just as the Trinity Test may be here. And that's it for my coverage of Part 8, and before we go out, here is Em and Steve discussing it for the first time on Sparkwood 21 back in 2017 their podcast on Twin Peaks, and also they're joined by Paul, who was their uh, third co-host on that show. He didn't host the original Spark Twenty One show, but he hosted a lot of other podcasts with them, and so you're going to hear his voice in the mix here too.
3: But I do wonder if they're like some sort of analogy to some sort of like radio isotope or something, and I know like as far as like any type of time travel, I think they've like been able to make like an electron jump time or something, Mm. but the idea of it is interesting and i think there's probably some sort of connection there being that we just had an atom bomb produce them anyway and they're ghost like they're not even they're they don't have mass to them like we we see at other times um but the, you got them circling around ray and then you've got the others that kneel down on mr c and they start doing this rubbing motion and and they start to to bring up blood i don't um, or they're rubbing blood around them, And it seems like once the blood is visible, they become corporeal. So I don't know if that has something to do with it. Um, I
0: would say so for sure. I, it, as soon as they started, they started to gain that mass and thickness to where you couldn't see through them anymore. They they
1: became more opaque, I guess, for mm-hmm. lack of a better term. Yeah. And then there, there's the point
3: where you can see Mr. C start to breathe yeah. before Bob comes out. I believe it's before Bob
0: comes out. hmm
2: I mean, they, they could be interdimensional beings themselves, you know, to where they're maybe when the atom bomb went off, it ripped a hole. And these yeah. were like minions that come through to protect Bob, you know. So I like that they kind of like solidified as Bob came out. They kind of did. It was a nice touch. You know what I mean?
3: So you the we see Bob's face inside of that gelatinous orb.
2: Yeah, bubble like, Bob. He,
3: even on uh, Mr. C's stomach. I, th- I think the first time I watched it, I don't even think I registered that there was a membrane around him. Mm-hmm. Um, It wasn't until the second time I was like, oh, so I guess he's got like a placenta. Yeah, <laughs> Mr. C's whatever.
2: pregnant. <laughs> it's <With> bubble. Bob.
1: <laughs> bubble Bob is good. I like blob. That, that works. <laughs> <laughs> and that concludes the coverage of part eight. This week on an exceptional episode of uh, Twin Peaks which also had an unusual approach with the guests. So we're going to go back to just me covering the remainder of season three. And uh, that will proceed, as I said, a week from tomorrow. If you're listening to this on July 1st, uh, it comes, the show is going to take a week off our first pause since early May. When I started the came back with the firewalk with me coverage and went straight into season three from there. Um, we may have had a day off <laughs> somewhere along the line where I was catching up with the coverage and, putting something out a little late, but you know, it was basically a day at a time since then. But now we're going to take that holiday breather, come back on July 9th. But before we do that, I am going to play the first minute of audio of part nine. So take a moment here. If you don't want to hear what's going to come next, how the next episode is going to open, hear my description of it after I play the audio, uh, I would recommend shutting it off here and waiting till you've done that to come back. But if you're ready, Let's now move past the monument of Part 8 into Part 9.
3: Thank you, Tammy. You're
0: welcome.
3: Pass in through the office. It's a Colonel Davis for you at the Pentagon. Urgent. Try to keep your voice down.
1: What?! We stare directly down a long dirt road, lined with mostly parallel trees on both sides. A black-clad figure approaches in the middle distance. It is daytime. The long shadows of the trees suggest morning. My descriptive powers fail me here, or rather my arborological ignorance reveals itself, because I can't tell you what kind of trees these are, except that the foliage often sprouts from a tangle of trunks into a green canopy. The impression is that of a large stalk of broccoli. These are certainly not Twin Peaks trees, deciduous rather than coniferous by the looks of it, with a vaguely desertish feel that the yellow brush, grass, and stalks of weed by the side of this dirt road, and the road itself, contribute to. A white fence lines the left side of the road. A wire fence with metal posts lines the right. The closest tree to us is on the left, unusually there's no corresponding right side tree for this one, and it looks dead. Its bark appears cracked, weathered, and peeling, and no leaves sprout from its branches. The living trees, as well as leafless branches that poke out in the immediate right, obscure the backdrop for all of this, though the glimpses we can make out suggest a green wooded hill behind the trees we're in a valley of farmland. The land to the left, behind the white fence, appears to be cultivated and furrowed in orderly fashion, while the land to the right, behind the wire fence, looks more like a field, with perhaps some bales of hay dimly visible in the distance. Almost directly in the center of the frame, maybe slightly off-left, but closer to the dead center than the black-clad figure, who walks on the left side of the road, is a piece of fencing that appears to be blue, though that could be a trick of lighting. The fence that stretches out on the other side of the foregrounded trees that bisect this area is definitely white. From the first instant of this shot, the figure, who we can already discern as the Cooper doppelganger, even from a great distance, is moving towards us, and the camera is dollying to the right, maybe tilting up or down slightly here and there, and panning slightly, but the impression is mostly of a lateral move. This move eventually settles on a red bandana flapping in the breeze, tied to a wire around a wooden post closest to the frame of any object. This element of bright color stands out sharply against the green-brown foliage, When the doppelganger is quite bloody, his whole shirt soaked and his face smeared and caked all over with dirt and blood, his color, or the color of the blood, is a dark, moldering purple at this point, which still creates a contrast with the bright bandana. The camera movement is slowed as Cooper gets closer and closer to the bandana, crossing the road, his eyes never moving from it, and lateral motion stops around the moment that he reaches out and yanks it from the wire. We will tilt up slightly as he moves closer, into a medium shot and then a partial close-up, never stopping as he trudges off screen right, flitting his eyes in that direction before almost leaving the frame, but we cut just as his shoulder remains in the composition, in focus against the blurred location that has been our sole setting for 28 seconds. Nearly halfway through our opening minute, our first cut and a massive visual change. Now we are high in the sky, A slow circular motion, keeping at its center a white jet airplane with dull blue and gold-swooping stripes on its tail and side, just below the pointed nose, filling most of the center of the frame. A red light maintains just where the right wing tips up, and presumably below the left wing tip too, though we can't see that. And just before our next cut, a white light blinks on. There are two engines, one on either side of the plane's rear, a whale-like tail lifting in the air, and six round windows aside from the more squared-off three that we can see in the cockpit. Presumably there's a fourth just out of view. The landscape below is shrouded in early morning mist, green and yellow hills bisected by a winding river, all bathed in and overwhelmed by the orange glow of a rising sun. After four seconds of this establishing shot, dragging us over the halfway point to this minute, we cut inside to a medium shot of Gordon Cole inside the plane, his black and white earpiece exposed as he leans towards the passenger window, caught in a white glow. We cannot see out the window ourselves, it's simply filled with white light. Two of Gordon's fingers rest on the polished tabletop in front of him, below a bulky, small, silver-framed TV screen. And the tabletop is also reflecting the white window in Gordon's shiny silver listening device, which is clipped to his pocket, caught in this morning light. 36 seconds in, only two cuts up to this point, no dialogue, a dynamic that will quite notably change in the remaining 24 seconds. As such, I can no longer be quite so descriptive, or this opening minute summary would run for at least 10 minutes, maybe more. Suffice to say, we cut to a reverse shot of Tammy Preston in a blue suit, walking towards us through the plane's corridor, carrying a white shiny silver-lined coffee cup in one hand, and a laptop and some other black object in her right. We cut to a reverse shot of the corridor as Tammy walks away from us, revealing Diane and Albert sleeping on opposite sides of the screen, facing away from her. Diane still wearing her leopard print jacket, while Albert covers himself in his dark suit coat as a blanket. Another cut to the shot of Tammy approaching, smiling with a warm, knowing look at Gordon as she takes her seat opposite him. Reverse medium, over Tammy's shoulder, Gordon leans forward to sip his coffee, clasping its body rather than the handle with his left hand, opening and closing his eyes as he takes it in cue to the reverse medium of Tammy over Gordon's shoulder as she leans forward to speak to him, carefully pronouncing each word. Cut to Gordon's reverse. Though his hand is mostly blocked by Tammy's shoulder, we can see that he's picking up the second black object that Tammy carried, apparently a cellular phone or other communication device. Following Tammy's ineffective whisper and Gordon's loud response, she reacts with slight irritation and makes a head motion to gesture towards Albert and Diane sleeping off screen. We cut back to that shot of the two slumbering characters, Gordon's shoulder just visible in his seat in the distance as our minute finally ends. A week from tomorrow, we will resume Lost in Twin Peaks, covering part nine. This was a hiatus that the show itself took back in 2017, so we'll follow its path, which will be nice for me since I've been keeping up just barely with the re-editing presentation of this, and maybe now I'll get a head start and even build a backlog beyond that. Uh, This will be back to the format of just me, covering the series. This was a one-off this uh, week of Part 8 episodes with Em and Steve's. Enjoyed that conversation. Was glad I could uh, revive it there from uh, back back when we originally had it. See you on Saturday, July 9th. Uh, if there's any change of plans, I'll put an announcement on the feed, but especially with now a week to get ahead, I don't see any reason to uh, slow down at this moment. So Look forward to continuing our summer of season three coverage.